All right, let's get started. Job chapter 4. We're going to go over the um, conversations between Job and his friends tonight. Uh, and what we're going to do in this is we're going to, to focus specifically on the friends. Um, and then not, uh, well, two weeks from today, we will focus on Job's responses. Uh, because next week we have our gospel meeting. And then the week after that, we are going to, to look at just Elihu, which is um, chapter 32. And then we'll look at Job's responses. Because in all of this, Job continues to make the same plea, uh, which is essentially that he, was, that he was righteous. Not that he was sinless, right? Because at the beginning of the book, we see him offering sacrifices for himself and for his family. So we understand that he, he had sins, uh, but they were rolled back. They were not being counted to him like Romans, or like Romans chapter 4 and 5 uh, tells us. So, uh, in, in all of this, in all of, these, in all of these conversations that he has with his friends, he continues to say the same thing. I am righteous. I know that God is there for me. I know that I have uh, a Redeemer in somewhere. I just wish that I could ask God some questions. I wish that I had a lawyer that could go on my behalf or uh, an intermediary that could speak to God on my behalf. I wish that I could have this conversation, which eventually he gets at the end of the book, right? But in this, last week we looked at the three friends, um, Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar, and we, we saw a little bit about them, what their characters were and so forth. So Eliphaz, if you'll remember, he's the friend that is very encouraging He's the kind of emotional friend. Uh, Bildad is the one that is focused on the scriptures and on the teachings of God. And then Zophar is, uh, remember we said he is the, um, he's the newly graduated preaching student that knows the Bible, but he has no clue how to, to help in times of need and times of distress. And so he just says what the Bible says without really, with no tact. And so what we're going to do tonight is look at those three friends' conversations with Job or their speeches to Job and see how they were trying to help and try to have some discussion about how we should learn from this. Because this book, Job, is, is often thought of as... Um, it's often thought of as just a, a story about Job's righteousness or about God's righteousness. Uh, but the fact is that it's, it's more than that. The first chapters, first couple chapters, are about the relationship that God has with Satan. Chapter 3 is a, is a look into a person who is deeply distraught and upset because of losses. Chapter 4 through 25 is, is friends trying to help. But the problem is they don't help correctly. They don't help in a helpful way. And then the rest of the book is a conversation between Job and God where Job is shown the power and might and majesty of God. So, let's look at these conversations. Somebody read Job chapter 4, verses 1 through 6. Somewhat of a long passage, but Job chapter 4, verses 1 through 6.
All right, so he, he starts off, like we talked about, Eliphaz is the, um, is the emotional one. He starts reminding Job of all the things that he did, verse 7, all the help that he's created for people. Verse 3, you've instructed many, you've, you've strengthened the weak hands. But now, verse 5, it is sin. Okay, remember that all three friends, even though they come with different approaches to help the problem, they all have the same understanding, which is what? Why is Job going through all of these horrible things? Why has he lost his family and his friend, or his other friends and everything else? Right, they have the understanding that, that sin, e- or suffering equals sin. So when you suffer, it is because you have sinned. Now, we've, we've said it a couple of times, but is that always true? No. Is it true sometimes? Maybe. But they understood it uh, the same that the Hebrews or the Jews did in the time of Jesus. Luke chapter 13, remember? He, he has the conversation and he says, why do you think that these people died when the Tower of Siloam fell? Well, you think it was because of sin, but unless you change your ways, unless you change your thinking, Luke 13, 3, unless you repent, you will also perish. Because they, sometimes God, uh, for lack of a better term, gives you what you want Him to give you, right? Like Romans chapter 1. They wanted to have their own way, and so God gave them up to their own desires, right? And so they have the same problem that people in the time of Jesus did, and the time that we have today, right? People still, if there's something going on, it's because you've sinned. It's the, the opposite of the prosperity gospel, which is, you know, if you, if you follow God, what does the prosperity gospel say will happen? You get a lot of goods, right? If you, um, if you follow God and you send in your seed money, then you're going to receive it seven times or ten times the fold, right? If you follow God, then you're going to be able to get that job that you've always wanted and then you'll be able to live in the house you've always wanted. Now, the Bible does teach industry, right? The Bible does teach that a a child of God's going to do their work. But that's different than what these people are thinking in the book of Job. They think you're good, you follow the commands, then God will automatically, without fail, give you things. And if you don't follow the commands, God will automatically, without fail, give you suffering. And so Bildad starts off the conversation the same way. Your words have upheld him who was stumbling, verse 4. You've made firm the feeble knees, but now sin has come to you. You're impatient. It touches you, and, and you're dismayed. Is not your fear of God, your confidence, and your integrity of your ways, your hope? Doesn't... doesn't your following God give you hope. Is that true? Does following God give you hope? Yes. Does it give you hope that nothing is ever going to happen that is bad or wrong or any kind of suffering? No, right? So, he starts off this conversation. Look down at verse 12. Now a word was brought to me stealthily. My ear received the whisper of it. Amid thoughts from visions of the night... When deep sleep falls on men, dread came upon me, trembling, which made all my bones shake. And and a spirit gilded past my face. The hair of my flesh stood up. It It stood still, but I could not discern its appearance. A form was before my eyes. There was silence when I heard a voice. Can mortal man be in the right before God? 
Can a man be pure before his maker? What is Bildad describing here? What does he say he had? A vision of some, some being standing in front of him, right? And somehow, this, this omen, remember, this book is written about a man, Job, who lived sometime around Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, before the Ten Commandments come into power, right? Sometime during the patriarchal period. Well, the vast majority of the world, even though, even though there were some that were following God, they were superstitious, right? They still believed in, in omens. In fact, some of the people of God, some of the followers of God believed in omens because they didn't understand, right? They're still in a time when they didn't have a lot of instruction. They had even less instruction about the nature of God than we find in the Mosaical period. So they don't understand. Bildad has this vision, and he uses that vision to somehow say that Job has sinned. Now notice, in this vision, does anything give the idea that, that it's even talking about Job at all? Well, I had a vision, Job. I was asleep. Some being stood in front of me. A spirit gilded past my face, verse 5. The hair of my flesh stood up. A form was before my eyes, verse 16. There was silence. Then I heard a voice that said, Can mortal man be right before God? Can a man be pure before his maker? Even in his servants he puts no trust. In his angels he charges with error. How much more those who dwell in the house of clay, whose foundation... It's, he, it doesn't mention Job at all, right? But he takes this supposed vision. Now, we don't know if Job, ha if Bildad actually, sorry, Eliphaz, if Eldaz actually, Eliphaz actually had that vision, but he says he did. We have no reason to think that he lied. Sometimes visions come from, well, wh where, do, where do some visions come from? In the Bible times. Now, today's different, but in the scripture, where could a vision like this or a, or a dream like this come from? It could come from God, right? And that's the first one. It could come from Satan, or it could have just been a nightmare, right? Nowadays, we're pretty clear it's probably a nightmare or your conscience working on you because God doesn't speak to us in those ways anymore. But back then, it could come from anywhere. It could just be a nightmare that, that Eliphaz had. Have y'all ever had something happen. Uh, I, I don't know about y'all, but I, I have this weird thing called sleep paralysis. Y'all ever heard of this? When I lay down at, bed, at night, and if I've worked out that day or ridden my bike or done something like that, when I lay in bed, I can feel my body moving like I was riding my bike or like I was playing football. At camp, it happens all the time. We'll go play football. I'll go home to the cabin, fall asleep, and I, it feels like my legs are still moving and my arms are still moving. It's sleep paralysis. Well, in that, sometimes, sometimes you have a nightmare and you're half awake in it. That, that's entirely what could have happened to Eliphaz. If y'all ever had something bad happen to a friend and you go to sleep that night and you have a um, nightmare about that as if it happened to yourself, or maybe it happens months later, weeks later, right? A friend of uh, ours' house burned down um, I guess it was about three weeks ago now. And that night, I had a dream about our house burning down. Right? It happens all the time. 
So that's entirely possible that this is what's happening with Eliphaz. But the thing is, he's trying to use this to help Job. Now, if we're looking at how these people helped him or tried to help him and whether or not it was successful, is something like this, is using personal experience helpful when you're talking with someone who has been through uh, some sort of suffering like Job? They've lost loved ones. They've lost their possessions. You know, their house burned down or something like that. Does telling them a story from your past give them any closure? It can sometimes, right. So, but if you're, um, if you're deep in depression, you're deep in, in, in suffering, and someone says, well, I know how it feels, usually that either makes the person mad, right, which is what happens to Job, or they go, well, yeah, but this is a little different, right? You've, uh, I remember the first time I ever said that was uh, someone had uh, lost their job and it was when, we were in, when I was in Arkansas preaching while I was in school. And someone said, uh, well, I lost my job today. And I said, man, I know how that is. And he went, really? I went, uh, I lost a job at Burger King one time. Right? It's completely different, right? But we say that. I know how it feels. We try to, we try to put ourselves into their place. And that's what, that's what Eliphaz does. It's not necessarily hurtful, but it upsets Job to the point that Job says, verse number, or chapter 6, verse 1, Oh, that my vexation were weighed and my calamity laid in the balances. For then it would be heavier than the sand of the sea. Therefore my words have been rash. So he, he says, I, I wish that someone understood. If you could weigh my words and weigh what I've gone through, you'll notice that what I've been through is much more than, than your dream, Eliphaz. You, you having this dream, or if this was a vision of this being that stood in front of you and said this, it's entirely possible that it was, but I haven't sinned. And if it was a vision, that vision was talking about something else. I don't fit into that. What I'm going through is, is weighty suffering. So that way that Eliphaz uses upsets him. So jump over to chapter 8 now. And let's look at Bildad's first speech. So Eliphaz tries to use emotion. He tries to use real life occurrences to remind him, well, you know, you've done so great to help other people in their times of distress. Well, that's great, but now I'm in it and they've never been through what I'm going through right now. I've helped people in times of distress, but I've never met anybody who had their entire family, save their wife, die, and all of their cattle, and their house, and a short time later had this sickness of boils come on them. I've never experienced anything like this. So then Bildad speaks, and Bildad is the guy who uses scripture, and he uses it tactfully. He uses it understandingly. So look at chapter 8, verse 2. How long will you say these things and the word of the mouth be a great wind? Does God pervert justice? Or does the Almighty pervert the right? If your children have sinned against Him, He has delivered them into the hand of their transgression. Maybe this is a family problem. Maybe your children sinned, and that's why they suffered. And now you've sinned too, and that's why you're suffering. Maybe they're not even connected. 
Well, he's speaking when he doesn't understand everything. He doesn't have the truth. And he's just kind of conjecturing. If somebody says, why did God take my loved one from me? Why did God, the, the gospel meeting this Sunday, um, the next week, you know, uh, we're going to talk a lot about military because for obvious reasons. But um, why did God allow that to happen when I was overseas? And you say, well, maybe, maybe it was a, a long occurrence of strife between nations and, and a religious ideology that led America to fight back after 9-11. And you go into this deep political discussion of why we're overseas. Is that going to help the soldier who's dealing with the loss of his buddy? No. Is, is it going to help the person who loses loved ones to say, well, you know, I know that they passed away from cancer, but cancer is when your body starts growing cells. And you're, you see what I'm saying? He's using, he's trying to rationalize this and sometimes suffering just isn't rational. Sometimes bad things happen to great people. Other than Job in the scriptures, can you think of someone who is a good person who has horrible things happen to them? Can you think of someone? Lazarus? Well, he died, right? Uh, Mary and Martha, his sisters, right? They have to go through the suffering of, um, of losing Lazarus. And the reason why Lazarus died was what? So that Jesus could perform the miracle, right? So they went through suffering when, when it, you know, it quote-unquote didn't have to happen, but it did to prove Jesus' uh, deity, right? What about Paul? Paul's going through and preaching the gospel to everyone, and he has horrible things that happen to him because of, because of people not liking what he's saying. You have um, Lot. Lot lost his wife, lost, lost all of his friends, lost family members, because they were sinful, and now he's a good, righteous man and has to deal with it, right? Noah. Same thing. He loses everyone he's ever known except for his family. And now he's having to deal. I know we read Genesis 6 through 10 as if it's some glorious thing, which it is when God saves Noah through the flood. But you have to remember what, just put yourself in the position of Noah, okay? How long did Noah preach before the flood came? Do I remember? 120 years. He kept preaching. There's a flood coming. God's going to hold us accountable for our sins. God's going to hold us accountable for our sins. He builds the ark. Then the floods come, and he spends that time on the ark, and he gets off the ark. What's the first thing he does? What's the first thing the Bible records him doing, rather? He, he, uh, he worships, but then he does what? He builds a vineyard, makes wine, and gets drunk. Now, why do you think Noah got drunk? This is completely conjecture, but why did Noah get drunk? I preached for 120 years, and nobody listened to me. Um, 
I'll give you a little insight into Western my world. When you study with someone and you, you teach them the gospel and you spend a lot of time and energy answering text messages late at night and answering questions and calling them to make sure that they're coming to churches, church on Sunday and you spend all of this effort into them and then they just decide and they just give it up and leave. You know what the first thing through the preacher's mind is? I wonder what I could have done better, right? So Noah goes through this tremendous grief because no one listened to him. And he looks for an answer. He looks for an out, which is what, that, is what alcohol does. It's what drugs do. They give you an, an out for the problems, right? And so Bildad is... Um, is, is, is doing the same thing. He's trying to rationalize this, and there really is no rational answer. In fact, God has said earlier in the book, there is no rational answer, right? When, when God's talking to Satan, do you remember what God says to Satan that, uh, about why he did it? He tells Satan, you have caused me to do this against Job when he didn't deserve it, because you question my righteousness. You question my justice. And you've, you've caused me to do this to Job. To allow you to hurt him. Emotionally. And then eventually physically. And he didn't deserve it. And Bildad says. You know. Let's look at this rationally. The last thing someone wants to do. When they're, when they're in one of these situations. Is look at it rationally. I mean all of y'all laughed. right When we talked about. Someone passes away from cancer. And you say, I know that you lost so-and-so. Um, you have a second to talk? And they say, yeah, sure. Uh, I just wanted to tell you uh, how cancer works. It's, just, it, it's, it's not going to help them at all. Rational, rational answers don't help in this situation. In fact, what's the first thing that the friends do when they come and visit Job? Before they say anything to him, what do they do? Yep, they tear their garments, they sit down, and they sit for seven days with him. And they don't say a word. They don't talk to him. They wait for him to say something. That was a culture in that time period, like we talked about last week, that's the best thing they could have done. If they had stayed there and stayed quiet, Job wouldn't have had these tirades, right? He, he wouldn't have, chapter 6 and 7, gone on this long tirade, about how he is just and how his life has no hope when it does have hope. In verse, or chapter 9, he talks about the fact that God has left him without an arbiter, left him without a, a lawyer that can go to God on his behalf. If they'd have just stayed there and been quiet and let Job talk, it's exactly what he needed, right? So now let's flip over to chapter 11 and look at Zophar's first speech. Zophar is the one who puts his foot in his mouth. Um, you can argue that what Eliphaz does is, is somewhat helpful. You know, Job, you, you've helped so many people. I, I understand that you're going through tremendous grief, but I think you can pull yourself out because you've helped so many people through this. You can help yourself. Bildad's, basically, he's trying to rationalize it, but at the end of his speech, he says, you need to look to God, look to the to the teachings of God for the answers, which is somewhat true, right? Zophar, on the other hand, 
has absolutely no tact. And so look at verse uh, number 2. So chapter 9 and 10, Job gives this long, uh, again, this long discussion about how he wishes he could speak with God. And uh, Zophar, one of the shortest chapters in the entire book, says this. Should a multitude of words go unanswered and a man full of talk be judged right? Should your babble silence men? And when you mock, shall no one shame you? For you say my doctrine is pure and I'm clean in God's eyes, but oh, that God would speak and open his lips to you and that he would tell you the secrets of wisdom. For he is manifold in understanding. Know that God exacts on you less than your guilt deserves. So someone is going through some sort of grief of a loss of loved one. And they say, well, you know, it could have been a lot worse. Um, I remember there was a, there's a story that one of our instructors back in school told us that was, he, he went to the hospital after a wreck. And he sits down with the wife, and the husband has passed away. And he's just sitting there, you know, talking, not talking about the, you know, the wreck or anything, just kind of remembering his life and, and just kind of talking with her and listening to her. And somebody walks up and says hi and um, says, well, you know, it could have been a lot worse. We could have lost you too. And um, he said, she looked, looked him square in the eyes and said, uh, I kind of wish that would have happened. And then just walked off. Um, that's, that's somewhat of what Zophar does. He just, he, he, he has, he, what he's saying is true that because of sin, Job had sin in his life, but he, he had been forgiven of that in, in prospect of Christ. What he says is true, but is this the right time to say this stuff? To say, listen, I wish that God would tell you just how horrible you are, Job. I wish that God would open his mouth and describe to you what he should do to you. It's not anywhere close to what Job needed in that moment. And yet he does it. Verse number 14. If iniquity is in your hand, put it far away. Let not injustice dwell in your tents. Surely then you will lift up your face without blemish. He will secure and will not fear. You will, sorry, you will be secure and will not fear. You will forget your misery you will remember it as waters that have passed away. Is all this true? If you look to God, you'll forget your misery. You'll forget your sin. You'll, be, you'll look back on it as if waters that had passed away. Is that true? When you turn to God, you look back at the old world, old life, and you say, that's something that's completely gone. I never have to deal with that again. Is that true? Yeah. Is that the time to tell Job that? You see, Job, the book of Job, is not just a book about righteousness of God. It's also about you know, how to interact with people that are going through this. At least that's something we can learn from these three guys. All right, so now look at chapter 15. This is Eliphaz's second speech. Somebody read verse 2 through 6. Chapter 15, 2 through 6.
All right, so Eliphaz starts to say, Job, you're just trying to justify yourself. I know you keep saying you haven't sinned. You're just trying to justify yourself. What, you, what you've done is, is horrible. And you just keep talking, and you will not recognize it. It's almost like, um, y'all know the Salem witch trials, right? Do y'all know what the test was of a witch in the Salem witch trials? If you confess, they they wouldn't kill you, right? If you just say, you know, Ray, you tell me you're a witch, and we won't kill you. But a person with integrity is not going to admit they're a witch, because then they're going to live with that for the rest of their lives, right? Right? And they're going to be charged with criminal charges because they're a witch. And they may still die. And so they decided they were going to test them. You know what one of the tests was? Yeah, put them in water. Tie a rock around their legs and throw them in a lake. If they drowned, they weren't a witch. If they float, they are a witch. Uh, <laughs> you might see the problem in that. Tie them to a stake and burn it. If they don't burn, they're a witch. If they do burn, they're not. <laughs> I don't see how they didn't see this, <laughs> this problem. Maybe it's just me. Um, I'm surprised someone didn't speak up and say, we started a country. Uh, we, could, <laughs> we surely could figure out a better test than this. You're just killing people. And then if you are a witch, you're probably going to die anyways, right? So as soon as you're accused, you're going to die. Well, that's kind of what Eliphaz does, right? Just admit that you've sinned, and then God can finish punishing you the way you deserve, and you'll be fine. And Eliphaz goes, or Job says, but I, I haven't. I'm, I am righteous. The other day, um, there was a ball that rolled. I was... I was grilling, and a, and a baseball rolled across the driveway. And there's a, there's a baseball in J.D.'s room that has the signatures of the 19-something uh, Pirates, the, the, the baseball team. Y'all know I have no clue about baseball, but I have a signed ball by the 1990-something Pirates. It's the Philadelphia Pirates, right? Pittsburgh, there we go. Told you I didn't know anything about baseball. All right, so this ball rolls across the thing. And I pick it up, and you can see, like, where there used to be signatures on it. But all the signatures are kind of scruffed up, and, and you can't read any of them anymore because it had been rolling in dirt and everything else. And so I called Dalton over. And I said, um, where'd you get this ball? He said, I, I found it. Okay. I found it is never the answer, right? That's the first thing out of a parent's mouth. Where'd you get the ball? I found it. Okay, where'd you find it? Over there. Okay, seriously, where'd you get the ball? And I just went through and I kept telling him, if you'll just tell me that you're lying, you won't be in trouble, but you got to stop lying. And about five minutes later through this conversation, the neighbor walks over and says, hey, that's my baseball. Like, no lying. The, that, and I looked at Dalton and I went, very sorry. <laughs> That's exactly what Eliphaz is doing, right? Your, your iniquity teach, teaches your mouth. You're, you're just justifying yourself, Job. 
why don't you just admit that you're lying and that you have sinned and then we can all move on. And Job keeps saying, no, I haven't because he really hasn't. He isn't lying here. He's being truthful, right? Chapter 18 is Bildad's next speech. Um, And again, he's quoting scripture. Chapter 18, verse 5. Somebody read that one. Chapter 18, verse 5. All right, that's a quotation, an exact quotation of Proverbs 13, verse 9. So, here's a little hint. The book of Proverbs was written by who? Who was the majority of the book of Proverbs written by? Solomon and David, right? They put them together. However, they didn't make them up, right? They're a collection of Proverbs that had been passed down through Israel's time period. And so Proverbs 13.9 is probably one of the oldest Proverbs recorded because it's recorded in the book of Job. Long enough to where Bildad quotes it as if it's just, it's not something new. This is something that everyone knows, right? Indeed, the light of the wicked is put out and the flame of his fire does not shine. And then he keeps quoting scripture, the light of the dark is tent. And then lamp uh, above him is put out. His strong steps are shortened. And his own schemes thrown, uh, throw him down. All this is, it's all scripture. Bildad continues to quote scripture. Verse 21 of chapter 18. Surely such are the dwellings of the righteous. Such is the place of him who does not know God. Who knows not God. And just, okay, Bildad, you just preached a sermon. Just a generic Here's what happens to sinners, sermon to Job with no application. That's not what Job needed then either. Right? So we have Eliphaz who has tried to use his own personal experiences to help, which just angered Job even more. Uh, You have Bildad who tried to, to quote scripture to him and to rationalize it. That didn't help. Zophar just kind of shoots him in the foot. So you're hurting. Let me give you something else to hurt about kind of idea. And then Eliphaz comes back, and he's, he's going to try to encourage him again, but just doesn't work. Bildad preaches another sermon to him. And then Zophar, chapter 20, this is the last time Zophar speaks to him. Every other person speaks three times. Zophar only speaks twice. Why do you think Zophar is only recorded to speak, as speaking to Job two times instead of all three times? Why did he just, seems like he just left. Well, somebody might have told him to stop talking. Or, when I read it, this is just me, but when I read it, I see him, if you read chapter 20, look down at the end, um, verse uh, 25. Chapter 20, verse 25. It's drawn forth and he comes out of his body. The glittering point comes out of his gallbladder. Terrors come upon him. Utter darkness is laid up for his treasures. A fire, that, a fire not fanned will devour him. What is left in his tent will be consumed. What he's, what's he talking about here? The, the ancients at this time didn't have a, an idea of heaven, but they did have an idea of what? Hell, right? They had no concept of heaven yet because really, the, truly, the concept of heaven didn't come until Jesus came and gave them a way to live with God. 
But they had a concept of hell. And so Zophar is just, listen, this is what's going to happen. You're going to be in a place where a fire that is not fanned is going to devour you. What's left of his tent is going to be consumed. The heavens will reveal his iniquity, and the earth will rise up against him. The possessions of his house will be carried away, dragged off in the day of God's wrath. This is the wicked man's portion from God, the heritage decreed for him by God. And then that's the end. Zophar just leaves. It's like he just kind of drops the mic and walks out. I'm done. I'm over this. He gets so upset. Zophar is more upset than Job when he's talking. Job gets upset, but he's kind of still, up, he's still depressed and, and sad over all this. Zophar just kind of, whatever, I give up, and just leaves. If, some, if, if, if Job had sinned, and, and Job was caught in sin, Zophar just leaves him in it. Now, is there a point when someone has to turn away from someone you're trying to teach someone the gospel and they just will not hear it. Is there a point when you have to give up? Is that point when you get mad though? Every, every preacher, every person, regardless of if you're a preacher or not, every person who has tried to convert someone and it didn't work, there's a cycle, right? You, you start talking with your person at work that you know very well and is your friend and you start talking with them you get excited, right? Because then you start thinking, man, if they'll obey the gospel, that'll be great. And they'll finally, you know, they'll finally have the answers to all the questions they've been asking. This, this, And you get really excited. And then you keep studying with them and keep studying and you start getting bogged down. You start getting bogged down by questions like, did Adam have a belly button? And all these other ridiculous questions that don't matter. What did Jesus write on the sand? You know, what are we going to look like when we get to heaven? All of these questions that really don't matter. And eventually you get upset because the person is just wanting cool advice. Cool, you know, they're just wanting little snippets of, of interesting information about the Bible instead of actually studying the Scriptures. That's not when you walk away. That's when a lot of us do, right? Oh, they don't care about the Bible. They're just, you know, they're just trying to do this. They're just trying to do that. That's not when you walk away. When you walk away is when it's, there's literally nothing else you can do. And it's never a happy thing. Um, I'll tell you one more story and then, we're, then we'll finish up. The other day, yesterday, I got an email from a person who is a member of a church in Kentucky. I'm not going to tell you where it is or anything. This church, the, the preacher there is a, is a friend of mine. And, um, and we were, he, he emailed me. I don't know how he got my name or anything, but... He emailed me with a link to an uh, area-wide food pantry. Like, uh, what's the one here in Columbus, the big food pantry over there on, um, behind, the wall, behind the McDonald's on J.R. Allen? Val- yeah, Valley something. Feeding the Valley, that's what it's called, Feeding the Valley. It's like that, but it's a little different. And it, it was just a link to an application. And so I clicked on it. I didn't read it. Didn't do anything. He said, because uh, whenever that happens, you kind of know why they're emailing you. They're upset about something. And so I just clicked on it, looked at it, and he said, is this something that the church should use to, to do benevolent work? And I said, well, it kind of depends. I mean, I don't know anything about the situation. I don't know what you're doing. I don't know anything. If you're using it as a Walmart, you know, so that you can go get, 
you're paying them for cheap food that you're going to put at the church building and then give out at your own discretion. It's just a cheap Walmart type thing, and that's different, and I, it just depends. And he said, and I said, can I ask you a question? What are you looking for? And he said, I'm looking to find the wolves in sheep's clothing, and I just found one. And then he blocked me. <laughs> um, that kind of that kind of mentality of sowing the seed when you're talking to a non-Christian is this. You walk up to someone or you're talking with someone and you say, hey, would you like to come to services with me this Sunday? We're going to have a gospel meeting this Sunday. We'd love to have you. And they say, no, I'm not really into church. Okay, well, I did my job. And then you walk on you're done. It's the same idea. That's You're just trying to check a box to say, yep, okay, I talked to that person, next person. That's what Zophar's doing, and it doesn't help. It's not not furthering the conversation. It's not helping anything. It's just getting them told and then moving on. And Zophar just leaves. He's done. So next week, we're going to look at Elihu, which is chapter 30. um, 30, oh, what is it? 32? Yeah. Chapter 32, Elihu, um, which is a new friend. There's a new friend that pops up in the conversation. And, um, and Elihu is not like any of the others. He is helping. He's genuinely helping. But he still has that same old mentality of, if you're suffering, it's because you've sinned, which isn't true, right? So, all right, any questions about what we went over tonight? Those, those three friends and their three mentalities. If we're trying to use rational answers to help people in their suffering um, all it's going to do is put a put distance between us if we try to use our own selves it may help you know there's that especially like if it's a family member of yours and you mention you know when I lost so and so here's how I felt is this how you're feeling that helps. But when you're just saying, you know, I, I, I lost my job today. Yeah, I know how that feels. No, you, no, I didn't. I had no clue how that felt. I lost a job at Burger King, and that afternoon I went home, and Mom gave me gas money, and I drove to school the next day. I didn't understand, right? But I was just trying to relate to that person, and that just makes them angry. And then if we're just trying to, you know, get them told, why did God do this to me? Well, in fact, God didn't do this to you. Here's what happens. Bad things happen to good people all the time. The scripture says that. Here's some more scriptures that will help you. It seems like that's helpful, but all that really does is, is, is check the box of, hey, I helped, and then I'm done, which is what Zophar did. So, Any questions or anything? Or any comments? Any, any um, observances or whatever? Alrighty. Well, let's go ahead and Have a little break. The lights just turned on out there, so I know the kids are out there. Thank y'all. Appreciate it.